desde 1949 un modelo para los medios alternativos, radio sin fines de lucro, controlada y financiada por su membresía. Usted puede ayudar a mantener viva la radio de KPFA Pacífica y hacerse escuchar postulándose como candidato para el Consejo y participando en la votación para los candidatos al Consejo de la Radio KPFA. Nominaciones para el Consejo de la Radio están abiertas para las elecciones de 2009. Por favor, visite pacifica.org barra elections para mayor información y contacte a la supervisora de elecciones al correo electrónico election en kpfa.org o por teléfono al 510-848-6767 extensión 626. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned next for Cover to Cover Open Book. Good afternoon and welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I'm Amelia Gonzalez. This afternoon, we mark the historic event of the first Latina, Sonia Sotomayor, being nominated to the Supreme Court by bringing you a rebroadcast of an interview with the Executive Director of the Chief Justice Earl Warren Institute on Race, Ethnicity, and Diversity, Maria Blanco. Here she is interviewed by La Raza Chronicles producer, Carmen Andrea Rivera. Stay with us. On May 26th, President Obama announced that Judge Sonia Sotomayor, a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit since 1998, would be his choice to replace Supreme Court Justice David Souter. If approved, Sotomayor would be the first Latina justice in the court's history and its third woman. Today we are joined in the studio by Maria Blanco, the executive director of the Chief Justice Earl Warren Institute on Race, Ethnicity, and Diversity at the University of California at Berkeley Law School. She's here to discuss Sotomayor's historic nomination to the nation's highest court. Welcome, Maria Blanco. Thank you for having me. Much has been made of Justice Sotomayor's biography, a life story that was described by the New York Times as, quote, the embodiment of the American dream, end quote. As someone who's been following this nomination very closely, can you give our listeners a brief overview of Sotomayor's life? Yes, Sotomayor's parents came from Puerto Rico to New York, and her father died when she was nine, and basically she was raised in the Bronx in a in the housing projects in a very tight Puerto Rican community, poor. She developed uh, diabetes at a very young age and still manages it. She's not your average or what people would consider the traditional Supreme Court profile, not only because of being Latina, but because of her class background and in fact, she went through Catholic schools in New York on scholarships, and she herself describes herself sort of as an affirmative action admit to Princeton and then Yale Law School. So, you know, she is the embodiment, I guess you would say, of sort of that American dream, but at the same time, she's very clear that she also has been the beneficiary of a lot of policies like affirmative action that were policies to level the playing field for those who could not immediately access the American dream. 
When she was in her 30s, Judge Sotomayor was the youngest judge in the Southern District of New York. She was the first Puerto Rican judge to be appointed to the federal bench in New York City. And she was actually appointed by George H.W. Bush, the first President George Bush. What do you think about her appeal to a Republican president? And should progressives be concerned about the fact that she was first appointed by George Bush? I don't. I can tell you what I think the appeal was to Bush Sr., which is that when you read Judge Sotomayor's opinions, what you see is somebody who is not outcome-oriented. In other words, she you clearly get the impression that she doesn't have a... she doesn't strive to reach a result by sort of uh, taking the facts and law of a case and getting there, even if it means um, sort of doing somersaults legally. She's very She's very factual. She takes the law... She applies it to the facts, and then it takes her wherever it takes her. I think that that was in in the era of uh, Bush Sr., where you know there was so much talk of judicial activism, and that meant usually for conservatives that meant left judicial activism. She was an appealing candidate because she was Latina. That circuit was underrepresented with Latinos, and in, you know New York is right in that circuit, and yet she did not have a profile of a judicial activist. I don't think we should be worried about her as progressives. When I read her opinions, they are as I've described them. But you also see that on cases that involve issues of fundamental constitutional rights, free speech, when you see her opinions on that involve racial discrimination, she's very aware of and, and very faithful in some ways to core constitutional principles. So I actually think, you know, this is sort of taking a little leap here that once she's on the Supreme Court and she's not necessarily following precedent because the Supreme Court, to some extent, I mean, they have to follow precedent, but when there are close calls, they they use their own interpretation uh, and set the law for the lower courts. I think you're going to find a judge that's very thoughtful and about social issues, about racial issues, about economic issues. And talking more about um, some of those racial issues, I wanted to talk about more uh, some of Judge Sotomayor's most uh, significant cases that she's seen over the years. One that's drawn a lot of attention from both the right and the left is the case of the so-called New Haven 8. It's a case that deals with affirmative action and public employment. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about this case and about Justice Sotomayor's decision? Yes. It is really a misnomer to call it an affirmative action case. The case involved a fire department that had designed a test for promotion. The test, when it was given and the results were posted, well, before they were posted, they weren't posted when the, you know, when the fire department got and the fire commission got the results of the, of the promotional test. Uh, it turned out that the, there was a huge disparity between the number of white candidates uh, for the promotion that passed the test and qualified high enough for a uh, promotion and African American firefighters and Latino firefighters. Under the law, under employment law, under Title VII federal law, when a test has what's called adverse impact, that is, you know, that the uh, pass rate for uh, whites is larger than that for minorities, basically that 
uh, presents a legal case for minorities that have taken this test to argue that that test has a racial, a negative racial impact and that perhaps a test with less discriminatory impact should be designed. So when the, when the fire commission decided to do just that in, in New Haven and say this case has an adverse impact and that means we should go back to the drawing board and design a test that tests for the job but doesn't have discriminatory impact. The white firefighters sued and said that the failure to promote them with this discriminatory test was in itself race discrimination. Which takes us to the decision of the panel that Sotomayor sat on and then to a larger panel of that circuit court where everybody agreed that the law in the second circuit was that if a test had that adverse impact, the law required that any government entity go back and redesign the test. So that, you know, there was no affirmative action. No minority firefighters were promoted instead of white firefighters. Nobody was promoted. The test was thrown out. Nobody got promoted. A new test was designed. So it's interesting to me how the, the, the media promoted by, you know, some right-wing talk shows have really tried to say that this case is about affirmative action, that, that these white firefighters weren't promoted and other people were. In fact, the case is that nobody got promoted and a new test was designed. Another case sort of pertaining to labor rights was Judge Sotomayor's very famous ruling on the baseball strike of 1995. Can you talk about that? Well, you know, the, the case is is not necessarily well known because it was um, complex legally. It's well known because, you know, everybody loves baseball. And what was what was significant and what what made her very well known because of the case is that basically she ruled it was during the strike uh, and, um, you know, the players were um, there were a whole series of, of things that the players union uh, was trying to get um, that had to do with both free agency salaries, a whole host of things. And the uh, baseball owners locked them out, you know, and the the it's called the case that saved baseball because faced with what was a very very powerful um uh, lobby by the uh club owners you know who were completely united on this she in fact ruled on behalf of the union and issued an injunction saying that the players had the right you know, she ended the strike. She basically said this is a lockout and the players have the right to go back to work. Shifting gears a little bit, can you talk about Sotomayor's ruling in the case Center for Reproductive Law and Policy versus Bush, which some have said is her only major decision involving women's right to choose? Yeah, this case involved what's called as the Mexico rule, which is that under twice under previous Republican administrations and then reversed under Democratic administrations and then reinstated under Republican administrations. Uh, there was a rule that uh, countries and agencies in countries uh, receiving U.S. foreign aid, that those agencies, um, and a lot of the agencies, what we're talking about is health agencies or uh, family planning agencies in, in other, you know, in this case it was um, in Mexico, but that's what it's, you know, but it's all throughout the world. Uh, the rule was that they could not um, promote uh, uh, abortion or perform abortions, that if they did that, the federal aid would be withheld. U.S. groups... Planned Parenthood and other, in this, you know, uh, groups in the U.S. Uh, filed a lawsuit saying that 
it was an abridgment of their, of the U.S. group's First Amendment right to uh, talk and promote, you know, choice to have a rule that governed in these other countries uh, against abortion. It was, frankly, a pretty novel argument that the groups were trying to make, that their First Amendment rights in the U.S. were implicated by the policy against the groups in um you know, in other countries. And the court, that was what the court's holding was that the, basically that the U.S. groups really couldn't, that it was a stretch to argue that they had a, a First Amendment right to free speech uh, that was being infringed upon by the regulation imposed on groups in other countries. I don't see that case at all as indicative. Um, there may be other cases, but that one to me, even though it involved choice, and this rule, to me, doesn't isn't some sort of indication of how Judge Sotomayor would rule on abortion. So, um, do, are you saying you see some other cases in her history that might um, better reflect um, how she might rule if she's approved on a challenge to Roe v. Wade in the highest court? I do actually. I mean, and this is, of course, is like we say tea leaf reading, but she is um, very strong on privacy. I've read her opinions having to do with uh, strip searches of teenage girls. Um, another uh, privacy case. Um, I got to remember what the other one. I have to remember what the other one was. She's very, very um, protective of the. Um, which means, you know, that she actually believes that there is a right to privacy in the Constitution, which is what Roe v. Wade is about. There is there is no explicit right of privacy in the Constitution that was carved out of, you know, other um, uh, parts of the Constitution. And this the, the right to privacy is a sort of a court-created right. So I think the fact that she she has applied that right to privacy in cases... Um, is perhaps a better indicator that she, you know, uh, believes that that's not a right that was, uh, you know, she she is, to her it's clear that that even if, who knows if she would have created that right to begin with, uh, but now that it's been established by the Supreme Court, she believes it it is, it exists and that it should be upheld. Mm -hmm. Uh, once again, I want to remind our listeners, you're listening to Cronicas de la Raza, La Raza Chronicles, and we're speaking with Maria Blanco. She's the executive director of the Chief Justice Earl Warren Institu Institute on Race, Ethnicity, and Diversity at the University of California, Berkeley Law School. Um, Maria, I know a lot has been made of, on um, about a quote taken from a speech that Judge Sotomayor gave about diversity. She said, um, this is back in 2001, she said, I would hope that a wise Latina woman with the richness of her experiences would more often than not reach a better conclusion than a white male who hasn't lived that life, end quote. Some have said that that statement proves that she's prejudicial or even racist. What do you make of this controversy? Well, first of all, the context of her statement is important. She, um, in two ways, she, first of all, she was speaking at a conference on diversity in the courts and in the legal profession. And so her whole speech was about why it makes a difference to have people of color on the courts as judges and in the profession as lawyers and that they bring to both their practice and to the courts life experience 
that hasn't been represented often in the profession or on the courts and that that broadens a court's perspective and adds much needed perspective on on, on the courts and that as lawyers, you know, you, you may represent clients or see the law in different with different dimensions if you have a diverse background. So that's the context of the speech in itself. In that speech, she was commenting on a, a statement that Justice Sandra Day O'Connor made at one point when Sandra Day O'Connor was commenting on her being a female justice on the court, and where Sandra O'Connor said something to this effect, that at the end of the day, a wise man and a wise woman would reach the same conclusion. The point being that the law was what really predominated and that gender shouldn't make a difference. And it was in response to that that Sotomayor makes this comment that you've referenced. I take that comment to mean, she's saying, you know what, there are times when the richness or the difference or the complexity of my experience not only makes me perhaps reach the same conclusion, but maybe because of my life experiences, not privileged, more exposed to other cultures, to other classes, to other things in life, I might actually be better at seeing a situation because I've been exposed to a variety of experiences. And I actually think she was probably referring to, in particular, that somebody with her background might be in a better position to understand a plaintiff or, you know, a case that involves a person of color or discrimination or poverty or issues that might arise in in those communities. And what about this issue of identity in general? Aren't all judges influenced by their personal life experience? I mean, how does that affect their decision making? Well, I think not just judge. I mean, I think, yes, absolutely. And I think not just judges. I think that is true throughout journalism, science. What you, you bring to your practice, to your profession, to your communications, to your analysis, your life experience. Now, I think that you, in the law, you clearly have to be operating within the law. So it's not to say that your class experience, racial experience, your identity, your identity, so to speak, is going to trump the law. But I think it really is true that everybody acts in this comment by Sotomayor. There's a, a lot of emphasis put on that her racial identity, that of a uh, Puerto Rican identity, might indicate bias as if when your perspective was that of a white male, that was a neutral perspective with very little discussion of the fact that probably if you are a white male from a privileged background, you have in fact been bringing that experience to your decision making throughout. And yet that's perceived as the neutral perspective. And when she says the obvious, which is that everybody, white, of color, privileged, not privileged, brings that to the table, you know, she's making that explicit. And in fact, during um, Justice Alito, when he was um, undergoing his confirmation hearings, made very similar statements about his um, Italian immigrant background, how that influenced him when he heard cases involving immigration. Justice Thomas talked about his uh, poor rural upbringing in the South as being a factor and how he sees the world. It's really not a unique concept, but I think it's interesting that people uh, have only want to talk about that when somebody's acknowledging that it's the perspective of a person of color. And confirmation hearings for Sotomayor begin on July 13th. What should our listeners be looking out for in the coverage? Well, there are a couple of things. I, it's going to be very interesting to see how much the Republican senators on the committee you know, they absolutely have the right and responsibility to, to question, you know, the candidate 
closely and etc. It'll be interesting to see though whether they do that with restraint or whether they are actually playing in a sense to their base and and attacking her not so much because they think that they can sink her nomination but because they're using her nomination as a way to appeal to the more conservative elements of the party and to raise money frankly. That's one thing I know some of us will be watching to see how the Republican senators handle the hearings. I think you're going to definitely see questions about the firefighters case. It'll be interesting to see how she and also the Democratic senators on the committee, whether they continue to allow, in a sense, this to be characterized as an affirmative action case or whether the records set straight that this straight that this was really a case where she and her other panelists were following uh, Title Seven law and that affirmative action wasn't involved at all. I don't expect to have her answer questions about her position on Roe v. Wade. No nominee has done that for now the last 12 years. The thinking is that you're not allowed to comment on something that might end up on the court because it shows a predisposition to rule one way or another and that's inappropriate line of questioning. So you won't see that. I think you'll see more about her race cases. But, you know, a lot of it has already come out. There will be a lot of questions about the comment about a wiser, you know, a wiser Latina woman. We'll definitely going to go after her on that. And I think if she and the persons advising her are smart, they will preempt that so that it is not a something that takes over the nomination hearings and that it has just a small place in that hearing as opposed to dominating the hearings. And assuming that Judge Sotomayor is confirmed, becomes the first Latina justice of the Supreme Court, what kind of important cases do you think are going to come before her early in her tenure on the Supreme Court? What should we be looking out for in terms of things like national security, perhaps torture, state secrets? Yeah, you know, that I have to tell you, that's the one area where her record is kind of fuzzy on the issue of executive privilege and not so much terrorism, but you know, because she hasn't necessarily had those cases come before her, but she has made a couple of speeches where she has been fairly deferential to the issue of the detentions in Guantanamo, you know, the detentions without trial, without due process, which I think are troubling. Uh, Those are the things that I find the most troubling in her speeches, not so much in her decisions, but in her talks that have come to light, you know, after the nomination was announced. And those cases, there are cases coming up, you know, to the court on uh, on the issue of whether the military tribunals, as they've been restructured, uh, provide sufficient um, due process uh, as opposed to having a regular uh, criminal federal court trial uh, for the detainees. So I think that's going to be very important. And it's not clear to me that she's going to alter the court on that. In fact, Souter may have been less deferential to executive power in those cases. You are going to probably see a couple of affirmative action cases go up to the courts in the next couple of years. And she will be at the center of those. And I think all eyes are going to be on her on some of the affirmative action cases. There are a couple of property cases that involve powering the government to develop land. And and I think that's been controversial. She's given the government a fair amount of authority in those situations in her stay on the second panel, and those are coming up. So, look, all the cases that come to the Supreme Court get there because they're controversial, fundamentally. You know, there'll probably be another look at some of the campaign financing laws that'll come before her. 
where it's unclear. She's very protective of First Amendment, but in the campaign finance context, First Amendment is that you can't limit the speech of corporations or anybody. So that's an area where her very strong feelings about the First Amendment might actually turn out to strike down some campaign finance laws. So the bottom line, I think, for those of us that have been looking at this is it is not her her presence on the court is not going to, at this point, change um, the 5-4 conservative split on the court. If she replaces Souter and she's like Souter, we'll continue to have on some of those controversial cases a 5-4 court. What is unpredictable is what her influence on other members of the court will be, her demeanor, how that will affect what they do in conference. Will she be persuasive? Souter was not necessarily seen as a persuasive person in those conferences that the justices have. Those are sort of the intangibles that could change the 5-4 decision-making. But on its face, her nomination, and if she is appointed, won't necessarily change the court. And once again, we're speaking with Maria Blanco of the University of California at Berkeley Law School. Do you have any final thoughts or comments on this historic nomination, the first possible Latina justice to the Supreme Court, Sonia Sotomayor? Well, one, I think sometimes it's important to step back and we get sort of cynical and, you know, we start logically looking at, you know, what does it mean for progressives, which is absolutely an appropriate question. But it it is okay, I think, to step back and say this is historic. And not just any Latina, this Latina, you know, with her background, it is historic. The other thing is when we talk about how progressives should view these decisions, I think it's important not to put all the emphasis on what she's going to do on the court, that the issue of progressives and the law and the courts really is from the bottom up. It's the lower courts, it's the appellate courts, it's not just the Supreme Court. And to keep that in mind, that some of the push to have progressive judges can't just uh, be focused on the Supreme Court, that it has to really be at all levels, including state court judges. It's not to say that we shouldn't be critical of her if she turns out to be more moderate than people want her to be, but to understand that some of this work and some of this decision-making has to happen in the lower courts before it gets to the higher courts. And once again, I'm Carmen Andrea Rivera. We've been speaking with Maria Blanco. She is the executive director of the Chief Justice Earl Warren Institute on Race, Ethnicity, and Diversity at the University of California at Berkeley Law School. Thank you so much for taking the time to come in and speak with us about the nomination of Sonia Sotomayor to the Supreme Court. Thank you. You just heard a rebroadcast of an interview of Maria Blanco, the Executive Director of the Chief Justice Earl Warren Institute on Race, Ethnicity, and Diversity. She was interviewed by La Raza Chronicles producer Carmen Andrea Rivera. Tune in on Monday when we bring you live gavel-to-gavel coverage of Sonia Sotomayor's Senate confirmation hearings with Mitch Jezerich starting at 6 a.m. Again, that's Monday, July 13th, starting at 6 o'clock in the morning. You've been listening to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. With Erica Bridgman at the controls, I'm Amelia Gonzalez. Thanks for listening.
is not a fundraising plea. It's a political alert from Pacifica Radio Network to you, KPFA listeners and California activists. This year marks the 60th anniversary of the Pacifica Foundation, a beacon for listener-supported, non-commercial free media since 1949. You can help keep KPFA radio alive and get your voice heard by running for your KPFA station board and voting for the listener candidates. Nominations are now open for the 2009 KPFA local board election. As part of the board, you will help ensure that KPFA programming continues to represent the diverse voices of our community. Please visit pacifica.org slash elections for more information and contact the KPFA election supervisor to receive a nomination package by writing an email to election at kpfa.org or calling 510-848-6767 extension 626. The KPSA Local Station Board meets on Saturday, July 11th at Berkeley City College, located at 2020 Milvia Street in Berkeley. The meeting starts at 11 a.m. For more information, visit lsb.kpsa.org. And the KPSA Community Advisory Board also meets on Saturday, July 11th at KPFA Radio, 1929 Martin Luther King Jr. Way in Berkeley. The meeting is from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. and is open to the public. For more information, please go to kpfa.org. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is just about 3.30. Stay tuned next for Free Speech Radio News. Hey, KPFA listeners and California activists. This year marks the 60th anniversary of Pacifica Foundation, a beacon for listener-supported non-commercial free media since 1949. You can help keep KPFA.